As Pastor Gabe alluded earlier today, as we approach Easter, uh, we've been in a, in a brief sermon series entitled, People Are Not Projects, A Simple Path to Loving Your Neighbor. And so two Sundays ago, our lead pastor preached about the importance of interceding, interceding, praying for those who do not know Christ, praying for those neighbors or coworkers or family members or friends who have not responded to the gospel, uh, praying regularly for those specific individuals who are not Christians. And, and then last Sunday, Pastor Blake took it one step further to encourage us to look for ways in which we can invest in the lives of those for whom we're praying. Uh, not just to pray for them, but when possible, to actually invest in their lives. And so he pointed out some very, um, some very helpful ways in which we can invest in the lives, for example, of our neighbors by, by displaying hospitality. And so today I want to, um, uh, to address the topic of invitation. We want to intercede. We want to invest in the people's lives. We want to invite them uh, to the gospel, to Christ. You know, invitations in, in general are very important. Most of us enjoy receiving invitations. Invitations help us to, uh, to feel special. It, it, and it may be something as significant as being invited to go on a mission trip that turned out to be life-changing for you. Uh, many people go on mission trips thinking the Lord is going to use them in a, in a great way to wherever they're going, which the Lord often does. But oftentimes the person going on the trip is changed as well. And so perhaps it was something as significant as being invited to attend a mission trip that actually changed your life. Or, or perhaps it's something as simple as being invited to a birthday party uh, that helps us to feel special. Sometimes we don't even realize how important invitations are until we don't receive one. Uh, maybe you didn't get the invite to the birthday party, and, but you saw all over social media all those who did, and it seems like the whole world was invited except you, and, and, and it kind of stings a little bit. Um, I'm a basketball fan. I love March, and so outside of Easter and Christmas, March is my, is my favorite season of the year as long as my team is still involved, and so it was a great month up until last Sunday uh, when the Kentucky Wildcats took one on the, on the chin, and so that was rather heartbreaking. It wasn't a complete waste of a day because Duke later lost that same afternoon. And so if you're a UK fan, you understand exactly what I mean when I say that. Um, there are some teams you love and there are some teams you uh, not so much. And so, you know, I love March, but, but each year at, at the Selection Sunday, there are teams and fans who are distraught because their team did not receive an invitation uh, to the big dance. Perhaps they thought they had earned one, but they did not receive one. Invitations of all kinds are important to us, but I want to suggest this morning that there's no invitation more important than what we find in the passage that was just read for us. I, I want to look at this passage this morning, and then as we conclude, I hope to share several ways in which we can invite others. Uh, with the gospel. And, and uh, you know, the, the verse that Caleb read for us this morning is a wonderful verse. It's kind of a standalone verse. It's odd to preach an entire message from one specific verse without reading the verses before it or after it. But uh, in this particular case, this, this verse, verse 17 of Revelation chapter 22, is a, is a standalone verse. And it's a wonderful verse. And what makes it, I think, partly so wonderful is, is where it's found in the Bible. Uh, that actually, in my mind, makes this verse uh, even greater because it's, it's found in the last book of the Bible, and the book of Revelation. It's found in the last chapter of the last book 
of Revelation. Now, we understand a little bit about the book of Revelation. As you know, it's a book of prophecy. It's a book of eschatology, the study of end-time events. And, and in this book, Revelation, we're giving glimpses into what will happen leading up to the return of Christ. Uh, the Bible is very clear that just as Jesus ascended back to heaven after his resurrection, that one day he will return, and when he does, he will judge the world. And the book of Revelation tells us what that will look like. It, it describes the glory and the splendor of heaven for those who are followers of Christ. In fact, uh, the first five or six verses of chapter 22 uh, do that for us. But it also shows the judgment of God to those who do not surrender their lives to King Jesus. And, and in the midst of all of that, of describing what will happen at the end of the age and how people will be held accountable and how people sin will be judged and the, and the nations will be judged. In the middle of all of that, in the very last chapter of the book, it's as if, it's as if right in the middle of all of that, in, in God's graciousness and long-suffering character, he extends one final appeal, one final appeal, one final word of admonishment in these last few verses. I want to read the verse again that Caleb read for us. Follow along, chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I want you to see this morning that I believe that there are two distinct invitations in this verse, and yet they're very much connected. The first part of the verse, I would suggest, is directed to the Lord. And the second part of the verse is directed to the lost, to those who do not know Christ. So follow along with me. Uh, point one is simply this. There is an invitation to the Lord. There's an invitation to the Lord in this verse that we're to pray for the Lord to come. Now when we get to this verse, verse 17, it's important for us to understand who is speaking and who is being spoken to. And to be quite honest, we, we have to approach this entire chapter with humility because sometimes it's, it's very difficult and scholars sometimes disagree even as to who is speaking and who is being spoken to because sometimes in this chapter we see John speaking, the apostle John. Other times we see an angel speaking and then sometimes we see the words of the Lord Jesus himself. And so sometimes it's difficult to discern but in the first part of verse 17 we read the spirit and the bride say come. Now the question becomes, who are they speaking to? Who are they speaking to? We're going to look at the second half of the verse in just a few moments, and it's very clear who that part of the verse is speaking to. But the first part of the verse is not as clear. I believe that these, uh, that these words in the first verse, verse part of verse 17 are actually words spoken to the Lord. And the reason I believe that is because of what precedes it. Uh, several times in the larger passage, Jesus says that he is coming. He is coming. Look back in verse 7. And in verse 7, we see the words of Jesus, and it says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Look down in verse 12. In verse 12, he says again, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And, and down in verse 20, at the end of the chapter, uh, it, it, the Bible says, he who testifies on these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And so three different occasions, even in this chapter alone, we hear the Lord Jesus saying, behold, I'm coming quickly. 
Jesus is obviously driving home the point that one day he will return. We don't know when that time is. Some people would look at these verses and say, oh, this is proof that, uh, that Jesus was mistaken because he says, I'm coming quickly and 2,000 years have elapsed. Where is his, the promise of his appearing? But we know that in Bible terminology, ever since the time of the resurrection and the ascension back to heaven, we've been living in what is considered to be the last days. And so Jesus is not mistaken when he says that he's coming quickly. He's pointing to the reality that we are living in the last days and that he could return at any time. And so when the verse begins by saying the spirit and the bride say come, I believe it's an invitation to the Lord to do just that. It's a plea and a prayer for his return. Now let's look at who is extending the invitation. The verse says the spirit and the bride say come. And the one who hears, let that person say, come. So the first thing we notice is that the Holy Spirit says to the Lord, come. You may say, well, Pastor, Pastor, why does the Holy Spirit long for his return? I believe that it has to do because of the primary role of the Holy Spirit. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus. Uh, there are many today who want to focus solely on, on the Holy Spirit, and so they're focused almost entirely on miracles and things of the, uh, of the, of the unusual. And they, and, they, and they talk nothing about the Lord Jesus, but they want to talk almost exclusively about the Holy Spirit. But the role of the Holy Spirit, the primary role, is to make much of Jesus. And so it's to glorify Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to lift up Jesus. When Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, the world raised him up on a cross between two thieves. But the Holy Spirit wants Jesus to be raised up in a different way. The Holy Spirit wants to exalt the Lord Jesus as the triumphant king. And so the desire of the Holy Spirit is to lift up Jesus, uh, not to lift him up on a cross as the world did, but to lift him up on a throne as, as he reigns victoriously. So when the Lord says, I am coming quickly, the Holy Spirit affirms that promise by saying, yes, please come. So the Spirit says, come. But notice that the bride also says, come. Now we know from other places in the Bible that the bride represents the church. It refers to the church. We are the bride of Christ. And so when John says the spirit and the bride say come, he's saying that the longing of the church is to see Jesus return and make all things right. It's to return and make all things right. This world is broken. Turn on the news at any point in time and you, you can quickly see how broken this world is. Our world is under the curse of sin so that the very creation itself cries out. And sometimes we grow weary in the fight against sin and we grow uh, weary of living the experiences of, of living in a fallen world. There's sickness. And there's death. And there's sorrow. And there's pain. And there's sin. And sometimes when Jesus says, I am coming, the church shouts a resounding, come. Come. Come and bring healing. Come and make all things new. Come and let us see the one who died for us. The one who shed his blood for us. It's true corporately as a congregation. It's true individually for those who are in Christ. Notice the next phrase, and let the one who hears say, come. In the Bible, unbelievers are often portrayed as having no ears to hear. 
We know that the writers are not speaking literally in that instance. The, the, the people have ears. It's just, it just means that they refuse to obey. And so unbelievers are often referred to as those who have no ears to hear. But the one who hears, the one who hears is the one who not only hears audibly, the one who hears with the ears that God has given to us, but it's the one who acts on what he or she hears and obeys it. That's, that's a believer. And so it's the one who acts on what he or she hears. Sometimes when I say to my children, do you hear what I'm asking you to do? I'm not really saying to them, did you audibly hear what I said? I'm saying to them, I asked you to do something. It still hasn't been done. Did you hear what I said? I'm saying, why have you not acted? Why have you not obeyed what I've asked you to do? And so, so hearing is, is affiliated, is associated with obedience. And so I believe that the verse means that as individuals and as a church, we should long for his appearing. And, and we see this individually in the life of John in the verse, at the end of verse 20 when the Lord says, yes, I'm coming quickly. What was John's response? Amen. Amen means so be it. So be it. Come, Lord Jesus. There's an invitation to the Lord. Secondly, I want you to see that there's an invitation from the Lord. There's an invitation from the Lord. Let the one who is thirsty come. In the first half of the verse, we see the first invitation, an invitation for the Lord to come. But in the second half of the verse, we see the second invitation, which is an invitation from the Lord. And he says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. You know, we understand physical thirst, don't we? Physical thirst is, is when our body recognizes that we have a need for nourishment. We have a need for hydration. We, we understand that. We understand that we need liquid in order to survive. About eight years ago, back in, I think it was 2011, my family and I went to the Grand Canyon. If you've never been to the Grand Canyon, that's a large hole in the ground and everybody ought to see it at least once. And it, it's a fantastic, it's a beautiful thing, but it's a deadly place. The Grand Canyon is a deadly place. On average, at least a dozen people a year die while visiting the Grand Canyon. And in fact, it's been kind of ironic. In the last month, there have been three people who have died uh, while visiting the Grand Canyon. One of them recently was someone who was taking photos and got too close to the edge and stumbled over some rocks or stumbled over the edge and fell to their death. There are places in the Grand Canyon, if you're hiking, you can, uh, it, it's switchbacks. The trail is back and forth, back and forth. And so there are places that if you fall, you might just simply fall 10 or 12 feet down uh, to the next switchback, which hopefully saves your life. But there are other places that if you fall, the first step is a doozy. You can, you can literally fall hundreds or, or maybe a thousand feet to your death because there are no guardrails. And so our children at the time that we visited were eight and 10 years of age. And so, you know, we were a little concerned, especially if you've got a boy who's eight years old, you've got to be careful at the Grand Canyon because boys just, they don't always, uh, they, don't, they don't respond well to understanding and sensing danger. And so, and so when we, we wanted to hike down into the canyon, but we, we knew we couldn't hike all the way down. It's seven miles down, which, you know, we could do, but the problem is you've got to come out seven miles uh, out. And so we just wanted to hike a mile or two down into the canyon 
And so as we hike those switchback trails down into the canyon, both Renee and I always ensured that we had a child by the hand and we always made certain that the adult was on the outside of the, of the switchback and that the child was on the inside of the trail uh, where they would be least likely able to fall. You know, but it, it, as, as real as the danger of falling is in the Grand Canyon, the most common mistake that people make is a lack of water. It's not taking enough water with them. We witnessed this very thing as we were hiking down into the canyon. We passed two young men who were struggling to get out. They were on their way out, but they were not in good shape because they had not taken enough water with them and they were becoming dehydrated. And people routinely die at the Grand Canyon because of a lack of water. Physical thirst. You know, as, as important as, as physical thirst may be, Jesus is speaking of a thirst that's even more important. He's referring to spiritual thirst. He's referring to the person whose soul is dry and is parched and, and the one who is spiritually thirsty but who realizes that they have a need. This is an invitation to those who have never placed their faith in Christ, who have never asked Christ to forgive their sins and change their lives. They have absolutely zero hope for the future, but they acknowledge that they have a need. That's what spiritual thirst is. It's an acknowledgement that, that there's a need for something that we don't currently possess. And, and really, that's the prerequisite for repentance. To repent of something means to, to turn away from or turn around, is to turn from our sins. Well, before we're able to repent of our sins, we have to recognize that, that we have a need that we cannot, we cannot meet. And so, and so Jesus says, let the one who hears and, and, and is thirsty come. It's similar to what he said in, in John 6, 35, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 55, verse 1, where, where, the Bible, where the Bible says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. You read that verse and you say, He who has no money, come, buy and eat. How can you buy and eat if you have no money? It's a way of saying that mercy is free. It's a way of saying that God's grace is free to us. Jesus says, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Now, it's not free to him. Jesus had to die for our sins. Je Jesus shed his blood for our sins. It cost him greatly. But we come to him with empty pockets and with empty hands. We have nothing to bring. Someone has said, you, you don't have to dig the well, just come and drink. Jesus took care of the water. He just says, come and drink. And we come to him bringing him nothing but ourselves, our dry, thirsty souls. And we come because we have a thirst that we cannot quench on our own. And it won't be quenched with money. No matter how much money we earn, it's a thirst that can never be quenched. It will not be quenched with homes or with cars or with vacations. And there's nothing inherently sinful about any of those things. But it won't quench the thirst of your soul. It cannot be quenched through a bottle of alcohol. It will never be quenched through a relationship with another human being. It's a spiritual thirst and it can only be met with spiritual water. And so Jesus says, let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I'm so thankful that in the midst of a book, of a, and at the very end of the book, after all the warnings of what will happen at the end of, of the age, that, that Jesus finalizes this book by saying there's still time. There's still time. Come. There's coming a day when it will be too late. At the time that Jesus returns or at the time that you breathe your last breath, there will be no second chances. You, you have sealed your destiny. But while you're alive and before Jesus returns, the, Jesus says, come, take of the water of life freely. If you're thirsty here this morning, you have an opportunity to come. The third thing I want you to see this morning is, is that the two invitations that we've discussed are connected. There's an invitation to the Lord and there's an invitation from the Lord and, and, and the reality is that they're connected because when we grow in our love for the Lord as Christians, we will grow in our love for the lost. Think about it this way. The first invitation is for the Lord's coming and the second invitation is for the Lord's salvation. And, and they're two different invitations and yet they're connected because the reality is that this invitation to the lost this one final plea from the Lord Jesus for people to accept the gospel before it's too late. This invitation was written where? It was written in a book that was for the church. It was written in a book that was for the church and to be read in the church. And what that means is that if the lost are to hear this invitation from the Lord, they will most likely hear it from those who love the Lord and who long for his appearing. The Lord is, an, is extending an invitation to the lost, but he's chosen to use his children as part of that invitation. And those of us who are here today who are in Christ, who are Christians, we can remember the person uh, many times who shared that gospel with us. I remember the man that shared that gospel with my father when my father was not a Christian and I, and I was a child old enough to know that he wasn't a Christian. I remember the man that shared the gospel with my dad. I remember the day that my dad received the gospel and I saw his life change. And I remember sitting under that man's preaching for the next several months and the Lord using him and his word to say to me, come. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, someone shared the gospel with you. And so we have a, an obligation and a responsibility to share it with others. But as I've studied this passage over the last few days, I've begun to wonder, and to be honest, I've, I've begun to wonder about myself more than anyone else. I begin to wonder at times if, if the reason that I often fail to invite others to come to Jesus is I don't have a strong enough longing for his appearing myself. I, I wonder if I were to be more intentional about praying for his return that just perhaps that would be the impetus that I need to be more mindful to invite others to join me. I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon on this, on this topic. Spurgeon said these words, those people who in very truth love Christ enough to cry to him continually to come are sure to love sinners also and to say to them also, come. There are some who talk a great deal about Christ's coming and yet manifest but small care for other men's souls. Well, it is talk. The profession of looking for the second advent is nothing but talk when it does not lead people to cry to perishing men, come to Christ. He who loves Christ as he should loves sinners also. 
quite frankly, oftentimes in my life, I'm so busy just taking care of the here and now that I don't long for his appearing. I'll tell you the times when I long for his appearing the most is, is in difficult days, when things are hard. That grieves me to say that that's a valid reason to long for his return, but it shouldn't be the only reason. I should long for his return because of what Christ has done for me. I should long for his return because I want to see the face of the one who, who died and who shed his blood for me. I should live with a greater sense of anticipation that today he could either come down here or he could call me to come up there. Because I believe that if I did that, it would impact and it would help me to live with a greater sense of urgency and anticipation. You know, the very fact that the Bible uses the word bride here, the spirit and the bride say come, instead of the church is just a further reminder about the eagerness with which we should anticipate his coming. You know, when you attend a wedding, or perhaps it was your wedding, you understand the excitement and the anticipation that is felt just prior to the wedding ceremony. What in the world kind of a sad wedding would it be for a bride who wasn't waiting anxiously for the wedding celebration? And yet I fear that that's often the case with the bride of Christ. It's true for me. And as I've reflected on this, I've thought of why that might be the case and, and perhaps it's just a sense of busyness that we just don't think about it. But I, I, I believe that one of the reasons is we often just grow so comfortable in this world. And that's why I think when I'm, when I'm most likely to think about it is when I'm least comfortable, when life is hard. But sometimes we just grow comfortable. There, there's an old saying, perhaps you've heard it, that we shouldn't become so heavenly minded uh, that, we, uh, that, that we become no earthly good. I, I think the reverse of that is also true. And that is that if we're not careful, we can become so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. You see, we're to love this world in the sense that we care about what happens in the world. But we're not to love this world in the sense that we love the things of this world. We're never to become so comfortable in this world that our happiness and our pleasure here become our primary focus. In other words, we're to long for his return. It's what Paul is referring to in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, when he, when he writes, In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Who have loved his appearing. Sometimes I just don't think about it because I'm so comfortable. Sometimes I think there may be another reason I remember hearing my grandparents, and obviously as you get older, I believe you begin to think more about the eternal. When you're, when you're a kid, you just don't think about it. You think you're invincible, you think you're gonna live forever. You know? And as you get older, you realize. Uh, you reach a point where you have more family and friends up there than you have down here. And so you begin to think more about those things. But I remember hearing my grandparents talk about desiring for either the Lord to come for them personally, uh, individually, or for the Lord to return. And, and even as a, as a kid who was a Christian, I, I struggled with that. I struggled with that concept of, of longing for his return. And I, and I read in the Bible, you know, things like John at the end of verse 20 who says, come Lord Jesus. And, and it's not that, it's not that uh, I don't look forward to being with the Lord one day. That's not the case. It's... It's that I've always read that with a little bit of a tinge of guilt. 
I've always found it difficult to pray for the Lord's return when I know that if he were to return today, I would have family or friends who would not be ready to meet him. And so it seems a little disingenuous at times to me uh, to pray for his return when I don't want him to return this very second because I have people that I love who are not ready. But as I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, the New Testament, the New Testament Christians had the same thing. They had family members and friends who had not responded to the gospel, and yet they're able to say, come Lord Jesus. And as I thought about this quandary, it occurred to me that if I live with a greater recognition and anticipation of his return, if I would pray for it and long for the return of Christ like they did, perhaps I would have a greater sense of urgency in my witness to my unbelieving friends and family. If I live with the understanding that he could return tomorrow, that might just be exactly what the Lord uses to give me a holy boldness to invite others who are spiritually thirsty to come and drink of the water of life freely. So in this sermon series so far, we've looked at the importance of intercession, of praying for those who do not know Christ. We've we've looked at the importance of, of investing in their lives, And today we've talked about the importance of of an invitation. I want to conclude by asking this question, what kind of invitation? What kind of invitation does the Lord want you to extend as his child on his behalf? And I think the answer to that question may depend on the circumstances. At certain times, it it might be something as simple as handing someone one of these cards. You know, at certain times, it, it, you may not have time to have a conversation with a person. You may be uh, just able to hand them an invite card to our Easter services. We've made those cards, and I say we, I haven't made anything. You don't want me designing anything, but someone has made those cards with the critical information printed on them so you can hand, hand one to someone even if you have a very limited amount of time. And so you can pass it to that worker at the drive through window at McDonald's when you're ordering your apple pie and Diet Coke for breakfast in the morning. Why are you all laughing? Or am I the only one who orders an apple pie and a diet, well, two apple pies and a Diet Coke for, for breakfast? Sometimes you just don't. I see people in here working at Chick-fil-A who say, no, he comes to our place too. And so sometimes you don't have an opportunity to have a conversation, but you can just hand it to them and say, I'd love to have you if you don't have plans. Sometimes, sometimes you might pass one in, off to a neighbor that you run into while your dog is taking you for a walk in the neighborhood. You know, a LifeWay study recently showed that about two-thirds of Protestants in America have invited someone to church in the last six months. Two-thirds of Protestants in America have said they've invited at least one person to church in the last six months. Now, that's a good thing, but if you're you're part of the one-third who hasn't invited someone, perhaps something as simple as as an Easter invite card is a great place to begin. And let me just say this, that LifeWay survey was given to adults, but we shouldn't assume that they're the only ones inviting people. Don't assume that adults can be the only ones who invite people. We were having dinner one, one night last week and our daughter, who is a senior in high school, was singing the praises of, of the youth ministry and, and specifically some certain girls that are in her group, in her C group, that she has high regards for. And she said, Dad, I know a lot of times people may wonder what youth ministry is about and they see us running around the church acting crazy and having fun and they may wonder if if anything important is going on, but I think that they need to know that a lot goes on with our youth that's really a great picture of what the church ought to be about. 
Our, our youth really are at times a demonstration of what the church should be and do. And so I asked her to elaborate. I said, give me, give me an example. And she said, well, my C group was, was on an outing last Wednesday. And as we got our stuff and we sat down at a, at a restaurant at the place where we were at, one of the girls in the group said, you know, the guy who waited on us was really nice. We should, we should invite him to Easter. And so the girl, uh, another girl got up, took out a card, which she was actually carrying with her. Imagine that. A teenager... A teenager who lives with a sense of reality that people are going to hell. And so she took out that card and she went up to that guy at the counter and she said, hey, do you have plans for Easter? And he said, I do not. And she said, we would love to have you attend worship at Ninth and Old Baptist Church. And she gave him that card. And the guy looked at her and said, thank you. I'll plan on being there. I hope you'll join us in praying for him to be there. I don't know his name, but that's all right. God, God knows. And later on, uh, later on, they went back and they gave him one of the brownies that one of our adults had made for the group that night. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. And Emily concluded her comments. And, you know, she's not free on compliments for those of you who know her very well. Uh, she, she concluded her comments by saying, I don't know if he'll come or not. I hope he does. But I just think that people ought to know that we have kids in the group who are serious about doing what the church is supposed to do. And then she said in typical, typical Emily fashion, and maybe if they know that the kids are inviting people, it will help some of our adults to step up their game. So adults, we've been duly warned. We need to step it up. Our kids are watching. So maybe an invite to worship. For some, if you've been interceding for someone in particular and, and investing in their lives, it might look like an invitation to sit down over coffee and discuss spiritual matters, just to find out where they are, to find out about their background and to discern where they are and their understanding of the gospel. You know, part of sharing uh, faith, your faith with an unbeliever is to start where they're at. And to, and to get to know them a little bit. Perhaps they have legitimate questions about the Bible that you can help them uh, reconcile. Now, there are some people who want to ask endless questions because they just want to distract from the real subject. But there are people who have legitimate questions about the Bible and about God, and, and, and perhaps you can help them to resolve those things. And don't allow that to frighten you. That seems scary. Many people are afraid to share their faith because they, they fear the person might ask them questions that they don't know the answer to. Don't worry about that stuff. The, the, the reality is that you probably know a lot more about the Bible than they do, and if they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, just simply say, you know, that's a great question. I'm not sure of the answer to that, but I'd be willing to help you find an answer. You know, the truth is we live in a day and age where we have more resources at our fingertips than at any time in the history of the world. And so if you have need, need resources or answers to questions, we have a lot of resources at the church that we can help you with. Finally, for some of you, the Lord may very well open up a door for you to share the gospel with someone. Let me encourage you this morning. Don't make it more difficult than necessary. Just share how you came to faith in Christ. You don't, have to, you don't have to have a PhD in New Testament. If you know enough of the Bible in order to be saved, then you know enough of the Bible to help someone else be saved. If you know enough to know that you, you were a sinner and that you had a sin problem that you could not fix and that you were destined for hell and, and, and that Christ died for your sins and that he, that he rose again 
and that he will save anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, who turns from their sin in faith and trusts Christ, that's enough, to, that's enough for the whole world to be saved. And, and so share it. Just share how you came to faith in Christ. And if you share it, ask for a response. Don't share the gospel and then just leave them hanging. The gospel demands a response. Ask them if they want to be forgiven. Ask them if they desire to have a relationship with the Lord. And if they're not spiritually thirsty, then, then don't pressure them to do something that they don't want to do. But what we'll encounter when we share is that there are some who are thirsty. There are thirsty it doesn't require anything from us other than a love for God and a love for people. You know, when we passed those two young men along the trail of the Grand Canyon, man, they were, they were not in good shape. They were not sweating because that's part of the problem. You don't sweat uh, in the Grand Canyon very much because the humidity is so low. But they were in bad shape. And we didn't say to those guys, sorry guys, you should have planned, planned ahead. You should have brought more water. We, we didn't say, good luck to them. Hope you make it out alive. No, we gave them water. We didn't ask for anything in return. How, how could we? They could have died on that trail. And, and there are a lot of people today who are spiritually thirsty, and we have the water of life. And so my question to us as a congregation this morning and to us as individuals is, will we share it with them? Will we share it with them? We're about to have a time of invitation. And perhaps for some of you, you'll use this as an opportunity to ask yourself, when was the last time I got excited thinking about heaven? When is the last time I got excited about thinking about the Lord's return? And if not, why not? For some, perhaps you will spend time in our invitation just asking the Lord to give you an opportunity this week to extend an invitation to someone, an invitation to church, an invitation to have a conversation, an invitation for someone to give their life for Christ. Perhaps you're here today and, and when I challenge this congregation to think about the return of Christ uh, and to long for it, you can't honestly do that. And maybe the thought about, of praying for his return bothers you because you'd rather just not think about it because the reality is if he were to come today, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be ready to meet him. And if that's the case then perhaps rather than the first part of the verse of an invitation to the Lord, perhaps you need to think about the second part of the verse, the invitation from the Lord. Perhaps he's inviting you today to come to him. Come and bring your thirsty, parched soul to Jesus, the water of life, and he will forgive you, and he will change you, and he will quench the thirst within you that nothing in this world can quench. We'll have men at the front if you have a need that you can come and they'll show you in the Bible how you can know that, that, that you are a Christian, that you can be a Christian. And, and if you're embarrassed to come during this time of invitation, you come afterwards. We'll, we'll talk with you afterwards. And if you're interested in knowing how to become a Christian, now is your time. The Bible says, come. If you're spiritually thirsty, come. If you're here today and, and you're not a member of this church, but you'd like to be during our time together, if you would come forward and just say, this is where I want to unite. This is where I want to invest my, lives with other, my life with other Christians to do the Lord's work, then we would invite you to come and make that public this morning. Let's stand for prayer if you would. Father God, thank you that you love us in spite of our failures. Thank you that you 
don't give up on us. That, uh, many times, Father, when we're so consumed by the things of this world that we don't even think about the reality of, of Christ's return, that you still love us. And I thank you for that, Father. But Lord, I pray that you would drive it deep within our hearts and minds that there are those who do not know Christ and if he were to call for them today or if he were to return today, they would not be ready. Father, give us a burden for the lost and give us a hope for your return. I pray that you would work during this time of invitation, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.